our experience so far of COP26 down here in Australia has been a bit of a nightmare because uh, we have an idiot prime minister at the moment. And instead of going along and actually doing something useful for our global future and sustainability and all that, he um, managed to get into a tiff with uh, some other countries' leaders and so on and made Australia look like we're absolute idiots. Hello, thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure, a fortnightly series looking at unfamiliar places around the world and aspects of travelling you may never have thought of. I'm your host, the Barefoot Backpacker, a middle-aged Brit with a passion for offbeat travel, history, culture and the whys behind travel itself. So join with me as we venture Beyond the Brochure. I know it's been a while since my last pod. I know I'm also one episode out of kilter, and I know that, as you can already tell from the title, I'm not doing this episode on what I promised last time. There are reasons for this, I promise you. Plus, of course, it wouldn't be on brand for me to actually go through with anything I promised, would it? As I've said previously, I'm simply amazed I reached 48 episodes of this pod in the first place. Anyway, there's a number of reasons why... I've done the change of episode and schedule. The most obvious is that I live in Glasgow now, and at the start of the month, Glasgow was also home to the COP26 Climate Summit. And so it made kind of sense to do a pod that aligned with that in a way, given that you know I talk a bit about political subjects in this pod anyway. And those of you who have known me longer will know that I also edge into green issues from time to time. In the middle weekend of COP26, there was even a protest march through the streets of Glasgow that I had... Full intentions of attending, especially as I've surprisingly never been on a protest march before, despite having an entire episode dedicated to how to do it. Obviously, it wasn't me who drew up the details of the guide to your first protest, but it's there. However, it coincided with a severe cold-related bug that was not Covid, or at least the cheap lateral flow test that I took came out negative, but even so I didn't think it'd be right to be in the presence of lots of people with a virus, even if it was outside. I didn't even do park run that day. That's how gruff I was feeling. The other reason, though, and I note that I'm typing up the script for this episode on International Men's Day, the much maligned day of the calendar, which is designed primarily for men to stand up to other men and overthrow the patriarchy, talk about things like the patriarchy, are generally deemed not topics to talk about with other men, particularly mental health. I've not been particularly... I genuinely don't know what the word is here. Vibrant? Active? On that score of late, uh, indeed, this very day I simply couldn't get out of bed until after midday, which isn't terribly useful on a work day. I've barely been outside for the last couple of weeks, only to the local shop, and, last week, it must be said, to Parkrun. It's November, and I've pretty much forgotten what sandals are. And you really don't want me to talk about my personal grooming habits. Suffice to say, I've not needed to do any laundry for a while. You didn't need to know that. It was going so well, but then... then it wasn't. I'll talk about that next time, though. Let me click myself back into gear first, as despite how low it might appear at times, my podcast is not a therapy session. I pay a therapist for that. So no, I've not done a heck of a lot this month so far, so I've nothing really to say. Oh, hang on a minute, hang on, hang on, hang on. 
Hang on one second. I just realised that because this pod is two weeks late, I never spoke about what I did at the end of October. Yeah. Yeah, so um, you remember I was going down to London for an award ceremony, right? Well, I did. An overnight coach the night before, which I managed to get some sleep on, perhaps surprisingly, before a couple of nights in Hackney, a borough which I've been to before, but which, over those couple of days, I realised, a bit like Camden, is much bigger than you imagine. I'll go into more of this next episode, obviously. But when a friend arranges to meet with you in a pub in Hackney and you're staying in the centre, but you find out nine minutes before you meet that pub is actually two stations away on the overground, but it's still Hackney, you realise just how big London is. I was only about 17 minutes late and I soon caught up with the beers. It was fine. The award ceremony itself was a lot less stressy than I was fearing. The outfit I wore. And I realised by saying that phrase, you must all imagine I was trying to be some kind of elegant influencer type person, was pretty casual and generally well regarded. I posted a pic of it to my Instagram feed, but essentially it was a beer-themed t-shirt, a pair of long-length denim dungarees with two fabric daisies I'd sewn into them, a daisy-enriched hairband, and a daisy hair clip attached to one of my two crocheted barefoot sandals. About as on-brand as you can get, if my brand is weird hippie vibes. Which, of course it is. I'd irked internally about whether I'd feel comfortable wearing that kind of thing, you know, to and from my hostel, but in the event, no one seemed to Notice or care. As one of my friends remarked afterwards, it's London, people see far more eccentric things daily. It makes you wonder why I never moved there, but... Again, I'll talk about that next time. Suffice to say, with hindsight, it would have led to a very interesting debate as to what makes me happy. Anyway, it was cool to meet with a few people I know from Twitter, who I either knew well or knew online but had never actually met before, even if one of them, Teo, the 5 to 9 traveller, has even appeared on a previous episode of this podcast. We were both nominated for one of the awards, Best Opinion Piece, but in the event, neither of us won. But hey, it was great even to be nominated. My imposter syndrome is quite large. After London, I went up to Merseyside to meet with an old school friend in a microphone in Southport for several hours on the Saturday night. Alistair, he's appeared once on this pod before, talking about the best places to find alcohol in Yemen, should you ever go there and want to know. Oh, yeah, I also met my mother. Hey... The main reason for seeing her for the first time in several years was because I wanted to interview, if that's the right word, my stepdad about his time in the Merchant Navy for use on a future podcast episode. I was worried I may only get 20 to 30 minutes of recording, but I came away with over two hours, and that's just scratching the surface, it appears. He has a lot of stories, and some of which came out in the recording, and a lot of them are not safe for work. But regardless, it's going to make a very interesting episode, I think. Coming back to Glasgow was fun, given that, you know, that weekend the South had a really big storm and the rail network in Cambridgeshire and Buckinghamshire basically stopped. To the extent that there were no trains leaving London that day. Or going to London. A fact that, again, I'll talk about next episode, but it was kind of ironic that a climate change influenced storm affected travel to a climate change summit. Which leads us nicely on to the last minute topic of this pod. It's a subject I'll come back to with more contribs, because it's something we as people who travel the world are directly involved with, partly from a meta point of view, the sheer aspect of travelling itself is a contributor to climate change, from the mode of transport we use, to the equipment we take with us, to the way we interact with destinations once we get there, but also partly from the point that us being in a particular place affects that place's geography and environment. And what I mean by that is that we are not locals. So our being in a particular place as a tourist as a visitor, adds to the environmental impact of that place that wouldn't have occurred if we weren't there. 
I know that one person's impact isn't great, and I'll talk about a specific reason why shortly, but, and I know I'm quite unusual in that I often travel to places that are lesser developed for not so much tourism per se as visitors in general, but many of the places we visit as travellers, especially as travel bloggers, aren't necessarily set up with infrastructure to cope with us. Which is fine if you're just me, but it all falls apart if you have several coaches or a cruise ship turning up. Now, environmental impact is very different from economic impact, of course. A community might be unsustainable without tourism, but might be environmentally doomed with it. It's very much a weird knife edge. Like, I've never been on a cruise ship, so I don't know for certain what effect they have in either direction. But economically speaking, it's never that sensible to base your economy around one thing, because what happens when that thing disappears for some reason like, you know, a global pandemic? But I suspect the economies and economic impact of travel is a subject for a future pod. It probably requires graphs, which is quite tricky to replicate in the medium of audio. Anyway, a couple of weeks ago I had a chat, a live interview chat type thing, shock horror, with Amanda Kendall of the Thoughtful Travel podcast. Because she'll do an episode in the indeterminate future on LGBTQIA plus travel and needed my input as an asexual. But while I had her on the... I have no idea what programme we used, except that it wasn't Zoom, wasn't Skype, wasn't Google Meet, wasn't Microsoft Teams and wasn't Discord. Recently, by the way, I found out one of the instant messenger programs I used when I first went online, ICQ, still exists. It wasn't that either. Anyway, yes, um, while I had her on the whatever it was that I had her on, I had her talk about her views on environmentalism, sustainability of travel and other related thoughts. And you'll hear extracts from that conversation at points in this podcast episode. Firstly, though, I want to talk a little about climate activism, given that we have just had COP26 here, and that's caused some protests and the like, as I mentioned. Also, in related protestations, there have been ongoing protests by Insulate Britain, a campaign group specifically dedicated to insulating social housing and demanding more emphasis on a low-carbon future. They're vaguely related to, more in spirit than in practice, the much larger and wider-scoped Extinction Rebellion, who rally against climate change and government policy towards it. As an aside... There's a number of people on my Twitter feed who are quite critical of the Insulate Britain and Extinction Rebellion style. In case you don't know, both parties are made up of activists who take to things like blocking roads to protest. Insulate Britain recently relocated the M25, the ring road around London. In Nottingham, Extinction Rebellion's modus operandi was to block the pedestrian crossings on a couple of the main roads into the city for about six minutes at a time. Uh, In London, they blocked a bridge. My Twitter friends made comments of the type... This is disruptive. What if someone's late for work and gets sacked as a result? What if someone's ill and the ambulance can't get through? See, the thing is, right, the clue's in the name. A rebellion. A fight for a change against the status quo. Change never came without some level of disruption. In fact, I'd argue that nothing at all would change if no one gets disrupted, and the act of disruption itself is necessary to bring about change. If you're too selfish to only worry about yourselves and not see the bigger picture, then maybe, just maybe, you're part of the problem. A few minutes delay isn't going to harm you. A delay in bringing about fundamental change in climate policy is very likely to harm you in the future. The other important thing to say is that with a lot of these protests, there's always those who think they've scored a goal by saying things like, you protested COP in Glasgow against unnecessary flights, but how many of you flew to get there? And you rally against capitalism, and yet you own a smartphone. Like, dude, firstly, sit down, you're a knobhead. 
Secondly, we take part in society because that's the nature of society. We're trying to change things from within. And it's kind of hard to instigate fundamental change in humanity if we're all sitting in a wood in the wilds of the Scottish Highlands, spoon-whittling and arguing with a herd of deer about rights of way. And thirdly, there's a huge difference between individual practice and corporate malpractice. The vast majority of protests are shouting about the much bigger picture against government and big business policies and practices which, if changed, would blow any benefit the individual can do out of the water. Case in point, the COP26 summit itself. Um, what I'm doing is I'm just looking up to see if there was actually a, an overarching theme for COP26. Oh, yes. Uh, I mean, emission reduction. I mean, obviously. Which is quite amazing if you think about the fact that, you know, everyone flew to get there on private planes. I know, yeah. And they're not. And I don't think any of them would have adopted my theories of sustainable travel either. So, I mean, almost certainly not. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, guaranteed not really. They're certainly not doing slow travel. They, uh, I mean, the private jet thing is another level entirely. Uh, and um, I think, you know, horrifying. It should be interesting to know the local European leaders, did they all private jet in or did any of them travel in a more sustainable fashion? I suspect not. I, I, I certainly, our own prime minister flew in on a private jet from London. Yeah, there you go. See, it all starts from there, doesn't it? Um, it does. Around 400 private jets arrived at Glasgow for the talks. 400. Oh, my 400. goodness. Oh, it just makes my little green heart break a little bit. I'll talk more about flying later. But firstly, I just want to talk about another situation where there's been traditionally a huge disconnect between individual and corporative processes. This is recycling and the issues around plastics usage including its relationship with provision of clean drinking water. So, one of the most fundamental human rights is to have access to pure, clean drinking water. Though there have been improvements in recent years, it's still estimated that 9% of the world's population don't have any access to a clean water source, where access is determined by a nominal limit of within 30 minutes. Your mileage may vary on how appropriate that is. While around 30%, 30%, just over 2.1% billion people don't have access to a clean, safe water source at their home. This latter figure is the more important and concerning figure, given there's also a disconnect between maintaining a supply of clean water and the provision of sanitation. It's believed 4.5 billion people, or 60% of the population, yes, over half the world, lack safely managed sanitation. Something as simple as the lack of soap means that the act of collecting and transporting clean water with dirty hands and buckets makes the whole process somewhat pointless. Another aspect is the practice of open defecation. Yes, the world is shit. In some parts of the world, it's seen as a weird and illegal fetish. Mm. But for around 950 million people, mostly living in the tropics, it's a necessary way of life. Some countries do their best to educate the people. For example, in Togo, there are huge signs by the rivers in towns advising people not to do it. But in my experience, they're largely ignored. Eritrea seems to have the largest issue with it, where just over three quarters of the population regularly go to the toilet in the open. And obviously, without waste disposal, there's nothing to stop diseases spreading from it. Plus, there's no guarantee that it will happen away from water sources especially for the 9% of people without access to any clean water, as they'll often be using the rivers, etc. anyway. Remember, if you're going to drink from a river, make sure the water's fast-flowing, 
on oystering upstream of cows and towns. Where clean water is available, at least at a village level, it takes several forms. My experience on the islands of Vanuatu is that the village has a communal tap that's fed from one of three places. Tanks of collected rainwater, tanks of water provided by an external source, or piped directly from a local stream. The latter obviously isn't always guaranteed clean, and one of the weirder problems with the former is that it relies on the rainwater itself being clear of pollutants. While Vanuatu doesn't have many issues with traffic or industrial pollution, it does have volcanoes. So for example on the island of Ambrim, which doesn't have any free-flowing water, the locals advised me not to drink the tap water because my body wouldn't have been used to the acidic and mineral content of it from the volcano. So what's the alternative? Let's turn back to the Western world for a moment. Now, there's all kinds of media attention onto the plastics crisis that we have in the world at the moment, on how there's too much of it, single use, for example, straws and plastic bags, and how a lot of it isn't strictly necessary. Much of this hatred falls on the humble plastic water bottle. The feeling is, plastic water bottles are a waste. They just get thrown away and end up polluting the land and the seas. And why don't we all switch to refillable water bottles rather than keep using endless numbers of purchased bottles? And I quite agree. I carry a refillable bottle around with me all the time. The item I lose most frequently when travelling is I always leave them behind somewhere because I have the attention span and object permanence of a four-month-old baby. Indeed, there's one on the table next to me now. The problem is, this is a very Anglo-centric view of the world. We in the UK have pure, clean drinking water, available literally on tap 24-7. There's no need for us to use bottled water anyway, except if the supply is cut off for some reason. And even when it is, it's usually only for a short period of time. The average property is off supply for less than an hour a year. Bottled water is popular when people aren't at home. But installation of water fountains in public places, coupled with a relaxation of shop business rules about being able to drink your own water rather than being forced to buy theirs, should see a reduction in that. Indeed, Amanda Kendall highlights that some people who come to Australia seem to rely on bottled water. Although, I will say, as a caveat and expression of my middle-class background, we were very fond of having mineral water in the late 80s. Admittedly in glass bottles, and mostly it was fizzy, but that was in the days when such things were posh and new, and before I realised that sparkling water just tastes of smug trickery and betrayal. But then there's plenty of people who are travelling in places with perfectly safe water who still buy bottled water and stuff, and that's the people who I'm thinking, come on, it's Australia, we have taps. Just, you know, bring your reusable water bottle and turn the tap on, it's fine. So that drives me nuts. I mean, the thing is, I mean, you you can get a lot of bottles these days with filters in the bottle. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I know that water is different in different parts of the world. So even water that's perfectly safe for you might not be for me because I'm not used to the minerals in it. But just get a filter bottle and that'll be it'll be fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some people are like, oh, but it, the water tastes different there. I'm like, well, it, I mean, yes, water tastes different from place to place. But really, like, just drink it. I don't, uh, I just don't think that's a good enough reason to buy bottled water. But as highlighted earlier, quite a lot of the world doesn't have this privilege. So, for both locals and tourists, sometimes the only option is processed water in plastic. Especially as many of these countries have a reasonably warm climate too, making drinking water much more important. Indeed, over a weekend in Sigiriya, in central Sri Lanka, despite not really doing a lot, I ended up with seven plastic bottles of between one and one and a half litres. 
It's not unreasonable to assume that many of the 2.1 billion people without access to clean water at home resort to drinking water out of plastic. This is especially true in West Africa, where plastic sachets of water are readily available. These are around 500 mil in size and cost the equivalent of about 5p. Local women and children walk around towns and villages with baskets on their heads full of them, and they're incredibly popular with locals. The trouble is, of course, that many of these countries have poor waste provision, and almost no concept of recycling outside of the major cities. So the inevitable happens. The ground in Togo and Burkina Faso is made up of orange dust littered with the remains of plastic water sachets and bottles, cast away as it's not just the easiest thing to do, it's very often the only thing to do. And obviously this then gets blown by the wind into rivers which feed into the oceans. And because the water is so cheap and readily available, it's much easier to ignore the problem, as the alternative of improving infrastructure would prove incredibly costly, not to mention changing the habits of the lifetime of the people. Even as long ago as 2004, according to nextcity.org, it was estimated the plastic waste weighing up to 270 tonnes was being produced in Accra, Ghana's capital, per day. And the majority of this was the water sachets. If we want to solve the water crisis, we can't just find the easy actions in our own countries. Banning plastic bags and drinking straws merely makes us complacent that we're doing our bit. Ticking the box, as you might say. To give the impression that we care rather than actually doing anything too fundamental to change anything. This feels rather like people who, you know, buy red plastic noses for their cars for comic relief but do nothing else for the rest of the year. And indeed, those plastic noses change every year to encourage continual donation. That just adds to the amount of plastic in the world. It's performative rather than actionable. That's not to say that banning plastic bags and the like is pointless. For instance, it's estimated that single-use plastic carrier bags will decay in the ocean, where most of them end up, in about 20 to 30 years. So if the entire world banned them now, then that messy scourge would be eradicated within my lifetime. Plastic water bottles, though. Those things hang around for about 450 years if left to their own devices. Rather, it's just one very small step we need to take. And we shouldn't ever consider the plastic pollution problem to be one that can be solved purely by the actions of the individual, because in reality, most of the problem occurs at a multinational level. And, while not entirely down to the lack of drinking water, it's interesting to note that most of the worst offenders for plastic pollution are in the tropics, and which lack nationwide clean water for the general public. The likes of Vietnam, Sri Lanka, Egypt, Nigeria and Bangladesh. We have to ensure that the rest of the world has access to piped clean drinking water, and this will help with a number of other issues too, Otherwise, we are literally just pissing into the wind. None of this, by the way, is the fault of the people in those countries, it needs to be said. When you're living at or below the arbitrary poverty line, you're not going to think about the cost-benefit analysis here. You're just going to get the five-cent water sachets, because that's your only option. Rather, the fault lies fairly and squarely on the shoulders of the governments and the large businesses and corporations that these governments allow to manage policy. Let's take an example here. The city of Flint, Michigan, which was without clean water for a while, around five years in total. Now, this is a city in one of the richest and most generally affluent countries in the world. So you'd have thought that, you know, there was both the political will and the financial clout to fix this. However, a combination of political intransigence, far be it for me to suggest anything. But it is notable that Flint is 56.6% African-American. And according to stats on welfareinfo.org, 41.2% of people in Flint live below the poverty line, 
as compared to a rate of 15.6% across Michigan as a whole. One imagine, had the same issue occurred in Bel Air, it would have been resolved quicker than you could say fresh prints. And the role of big businesses in supplying bottled water to the residents, as a public service, no less, prevented the original problem from being resolved in good time. This sets a very bad precedent. As it suggests, the easiest solution to the problem is both the cheapest and the most profitable. No different from the five-cent water sachets in West Africa. It's an easy way for someone to make money. It's an easy way for someone who is white to make money. But both solutions merely add to the plastic pollution problem and are therefore unsustainable in the medium term. I also have issues with regard to recycling in general. I think recycling makes perfect sense. You're reusing the materials you've already got, so you're not needing to create anything new from scratch, meaning you no longer have the initial setup costs, finance and resource. And once you've worked out how to recycle, it becomes a self-fulfilling concept, or at least a lot more so than the use once and destroy, which is very much an end-to-end process. However, obviously, firstly, not everything we use can be recycled. This is true of several types of commonly used plastic, including the aforementioned single-use carrier bags, but also crisp packets and other metallic-layered plastic food products. It seems weird with hindsight that we'd actively create a product that we can't reuse when we should be able to create similar acting packaging that can be. Another related problem is that other types of plastic used in everyday living could be recycled, but require more specific processing that isn't commonplace in municipal recycling tips. An example of that is polystyrene. One of the other rules is that you can't recycle things that have food residue on them, which always causes my brain to overanalyse when washing up my tubs of peanut butter, which is not the easiest substance in the world to remove from under the rim of a plastic tub that narrows at the top. My other overarching concern, though, is, in the UK at least, every council seems to have its own rules about what can be recycled and what can't be. This is based presumably on the facilities available locally, Heaven forbid councils speak to each other to create a nationwide recycling policy. This also includes the way it's collected. So in Glasgow and Ashfield in Nottinghamshire, for instance, plastic and cardboard and paper are collected together, while in Sheffield you have to put them in separate bins. Sometimes I have very little faith in the separation mechanics at the refuse sites that these collections go to. And then, of course, there's the feeling, that fear, that if you get something even a tiny bit wrong, you know, like leaving one little smudge of peanut butter or a small part of a non-recyclable label on a packet or something, the whole thing will be cast into general waste anyway, and none of your bin, possibly even your whole street's bins, will be recycled at all. Again, I'm not saying don't recycle, that would be silly. What I am saying is, if all we do is wash our jars and scrape food off our pizza boxes, it's not going to stop the environmental problems we're causing as a species. As I say, the trouble is, issues that require a fundamental change in government policy are quite hard to change on your own. Hence the need for active protests and affirmative group action. Much of the talk about environmentalism and climate change centres on discussions around rising sea levels and how many of the world's island nations are at risk from flooding. Places like Marshall Islands and Kiribati and the Maldives. Oh no! Where will travel influences and honeymoons go now? Quel horreur. But change is evident much closer to home, or at least much closer to my home. Two years ago, I hiked across Great Britain. You're probably sick of me talking about that, but in truth, I probably don't talk about it enough, to be honest. But that's by the by. We started, as you know, from the furthest easterly point of Great Britain, at Lowestoft in Suffolk, and we walked around the coast of Norfolk for six days. Much of this, certainly on the early stretches, was dominated by walking along either the shoreline or on the cliff tops overlooking the shoreline. 
but I'm mentioning this not as a means to paint a picture of the route, more to highlight a very important aspect present across the entire path. We stopped for brunch on the second day at a small cafe near the village of Winterton. Called the Dunes Cafe, it served up a great selection of breakfast sandwiches and small meals and a good array of drinks. It was a beautiful, clear, sunny day and the cafe and road up to it and a little way beyond to the beach were both proving pretty popular. Listeners, that cafe no longer exists. Within a year and a half of visiting, the cafe had been demolished because half of it was teetering on a cliff edge. The whole of this coast suffers greatly from cliff erosion. Some villages have been moved back a couple of hundred metres over the years. Others have been lost. Walking along the beach, you get a sense of it, as you can see how tall the cliffs are, but also the patches of them where the sea has worn them away. But it's only when you're walking on top of them that you get a fully clear picture as to the extent of the issue. There are places where the root of the path has been clearly lost down what looks like a crater, jutting into the land, and only the repeated patter of hundreds of feet creating a makeshift path along the new edge of the farmer's field identify the new route. Looking out to where the land once stood, you can see the chasms created, the landslides that have happened. There are no fences to protect you from a false step either. There's no point really as they'd have been pulled down by the cliffs just as soon as they'd be erected. Even the footfalls tracing the new routes have moved over time as the erosion gets closer and closer to the new path. The part of the coast between Caister and Croma has been the most affected by this erosion. It's been estimated up to 100 metres of land was lost in 12 years at the turn of this century. It must be said the cliffs here have always been eroding due to their makeup. It's soft boulder clay, easily washed away. But the rising sea levels and more frequent storms hitting the coast have been exacerbating it in more recent years. The effects of climate change happening here, now, before people's eyes. Now, several attempts have been made to mitigate this. Uh, along part of the shoreline, stretching out to sea, wooden or metallic structures have been constructed. These are called groins, it's with a Y, rude people, and they serve to break up the waves and prevent sediment, you know, beach sand mainly, from being washed away. The more sand that there is, the less water can reach the cliff to erode it. It's not foolproof, and some groins in the area were themselves washed away in big storms this century, but it serves as a stopgap to allow a couple of decades grace while more permanent solutions are found. One such permanent solution was enacted a couple of months after we walked through at the village of Bacton. This is a place that was very familiar to me in my previous life in the energy industry, as it's the site of huge storage facilities for natural gas collected in the North Sea oil fields, as well as being the British side of the continental interconnector that allows gas to flow between the UK and Europe, and thus allows easy access to energy from abroad. It's a very important site. And obviously, being at a location potentially in danger of erosion, alternative preventive measures needed to be undertaken. Using a technique honed in the Netherlands, a country well-versed in flood erosion preventive measures, sand has been relocated directly, and new entire sand dunes have been created, changing the layout of the coastline and preventing easy erosion. One possible downside is that some believe it merely shifts the problems elsewhere along the coast, but for now at least it seems to be working and backed and is safe. Obviously this is a very big engineering task that, if you applied it to the entire Norfolk coast, would cost incredible amounts of money. But the question is, how much is it worth to save your villages? I mentioned earlier about flights. Now, obviously, in my previous life as a travel blogger, <laughs> I took quite a few planes. But that's largely because the places I was going to were often ones very difficult to get to any other way, with the restrictions of time and money that I had anyway. 
And in fact, as an aside, both are more than just the simple fact that a train or even a bus take longer. That journeys aren't as direct means they may end up costing more than the flight, especially if we're returning the same way you came. Think how many trains and buses you'd have to catch to travel from, for example, the UK to Singapore. The other problem with fully overland travel is administrative. Regardless of what colour passport you hold, mine's red, many countries would require you to get a visa, even for transiting, and sometimes these are quite hard to get hold of en route, or they may require evidence of entry and exit, and that means you'll have to book lots of travel in advance, which may not even be possible if your intended method is a local bus. And as I noted on Podcast 25, visas can be expensive. There are also some shall we say, inconveniently placed countries for long-distance travel where even transiting is generally impossible for administrative or safety reasons, Democratic Republic of Congo. Of course, this aspect is ramped up if you either live on or want to travel to many island nations or a continental landmass with no land connection to other parts of the world. And this seems like a good place to pick up the conversation I had with Amanda, who lives somewhere quite far from the rest of civilization. So, I mean, let's start with flights because obviously like a key part of sustainable travel would be to fly less. Obviously, cutting down flying is one of the most, you know, effective ways we can be a, we can be more sustainable travellers. Um, but of course, I live in Perth, which is, you know, it's a long way from everywhere. It's the, you know, by some markers, the most isolated city in the world. You know, there's people, I've seen people, Northern Hemisphere people, nearly exclusively saying like pledging to never fly again I'm like, well I'm not pledging to never fly again because I would like to leave Australia again and not on a cruise ship so you know and there's really not many alternatives so basically I have to fly at some stage to travel I would like to fly less but I still have to fly a little bit but then I have to or what I don't have to I choose to really try and embrace the whole slow travel idea and stay in one place for a longer time you know back in the day when I was um, younger and less, I don't know, less aware, I suppose, I would take lots of short flights and, you know, I would go to Europe and I would go to five different countries and I would fly between them because it was cheap um, and easy and why not? Whereas like on my last trip pre-COVID, I uh, went to Denmark and I was, you know, of course I was I was tempted as I always am. You know, people are saying to me, oh, you'll be near, you know, quite close to Germany. You should fly down there and do this and um, fly up to, you know, top of Norway or blah, blah, blah. But what I ended up doing was just spending those, you know, several weeks um, based only in Denmark, you know, longer time in each place. I did um, did rent a car for, you know, a, probably a third of the trip, but even then still did the slow travel part and distances in Denmark are pretty um, small. I actually didn't even need to fill up the tank of that car until I returned it. So um, despite covering, you know, a fair, fair swathe of Denmark. So that's so the slow travel and you know longer time in one place kind of thing. I think I hope that more people will will cotton on to how um, valuable that is, but I'm not sure. So like for example, at the moment we can um, East Coast Australians have now been able to um, they can now leave the country and come back, which is like as of the first of November. So it's pretty new. And I was following a guy who's gone to Singapore, and there's still some um, quarantine uh, or some kind of arrangement there where it's not worth going basically if you're only going for a few days. And in the past, a lot of Australians would go to Singapore for three or four days because it's relatively close. Um, you go there and you, you know, go out a bit, have a, interesting meals and go shopping and come home. And so there's been a lot of a discussion about, Oh, Oh, it's not worth, um, I'll never go to Singapore for a week. What would I do for a whole week? 
and it just makes me makes my blood boil a little bit and I have stopped actually replying to these people because they obviously are not thinking the same way as me but I was like oh I've been there for a week and I still I could go back and spend weeks there there's so many different things you could do you just have to change your mindset and your approach to travel and um, I don't know if I'm fighting a losing battle but I feel like perhaps I am but I think that's the best thing we can do to be more sustainable. I don't have the attention span to spend too long in a place. Oh, um, so I'm really? always, I always have to move. Yes. Uh, it's probably rated to ADHD, but I always have to move on. I always get bored and I always go, all right, I need to go somewhere else now. But the last holiday I did before COVID was an interrail trip around Europe. So I had a, a total of about three months. So while I was only in a place for like three or four days, potentially at maximum, it was just a case of then hopping on a train and then going somewhere else. So, Which is, yes, and that I think is totally fine. Well, it's funny, you should, you're segueing me into my next point because my next point is that um, I think rather than trying to convince people to behave better, we just, the best way is to provide them with less choice. So, for example, um, so basically like making making the tourism industry better so there is, the choice is more sustainable and you can't, like, that's, the sustainable travel happens by default. So, for example, in France, you know, where they've have, is this um, already enacted or is it coming? Where you won't be able to take a flight for a short, like a um, an internal flight. If if there's a domestic train that takes two hours, you can't take a flight unless presumably it's a connecting flight. Perhaps yes, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but basically you can't. If you can take a short or a, a train trip instead of a um, an internal flight. Now you well, you will that you will be forced to do so, and so therefore the choice is the sustainable choice is the only choice, and then people don't have to think about it. And like, although I love, would love to think that everyone would actually think, oh well, it would be actually much better for the environment to take the train. I won't take this flight. Also, I think for a short flight, it's it's much simpler and easier to take the train. But anyway, um, but if they can't ta- they can't fly no matter what, then they just have to be more sustainable, and that's that's good. So I think that sort of systemic change is probably the way we're going to make really shift the needle because expecting people um, to always make the most sustainable choice is great, but most people probably won't. And I think in travel, especially because people think of taking trips as their, you know, it's a, it's a pleasure, it's a, it's a reward, it's a bonus, all of that kind of stuff. And so then they kind of excuse themselves from being sustainable. Like they might be fabulous at home and they always take the train to work and they recycle and they do all the right things. But often people forget those kind of um, values when they travel because they're spoiling themselves or it's, you know, just once a, you know, once a year or whatever. And so I think that um, it's, it's, it's idealistic to expect people to be sustainable travelers, um, you know, altruistically, unfortunately. Now, There's a number of takeaways from that conversation, but going back to what I said earlier, I've taken quite a few trips and my adventures around both West Africa and Southern Africa spring to mind, where I've flown to the region, but then spent my weeks travelling around it by land, which is, I'd say, a valid compromise. My only flights were intercontinental rather than locally country hopping. It would have actually been impossible for me to get to West Africa overland at the time, by the way. I know this because that was my original intention. But at the time, Ebola had closed some of the internal borders, and civil war have closed the others. One day I'll get to Guinea. One day. This is because, of course, it's the shorter flights that cause the damage. There's a lot of them, and many of them are unnecessary. 
though of course by no means all. I've pointed out before that I've no qualms about very short inter-island flights, as seen in Orkney and Vanuatu. The latter doesn't appear to have an inter-island ferry service at all, and many of the islands, being volcanic, don't have a suitable place to moor up a usefully sized vessel. While the former has a ferry service, but often has issues with weather, especially in the winter. And also, many of their terminals are nowhere near the island villages. Slash me stares at Westry. It's the flights between close cities that are the main problems. It's often touted as a domestic thing, as in the France example in the conversation I had with Amanda, but in reality it's international too. In a straight line it's 345 miles or 555 kilometres from London to Glasgow. This is a very similar distance as London to Dortmund in Germany, or in North American terms Boston to Baltimore or New York to Toronto. I've flown twice in 2021. Well, three times, one was a return. I flew one way from Papa Westry to Kirkwall in Orkney. Flight time, 17 minutes, but an inter-island flight, so it was fine. The other was from Glasgow to Birmingham and back, a flight time of about 50 minutes. And why did I take that return flight? Because not only was it quicker than the alternative methods of transport, because of the distances involved, 250 miles, 400 kilometres, the coach would have taken too long and departed arrived at inconvenient times, and the train would have been considerably more expensive. Like double the cost. As well as taking longer than you might expect for a fast route between two of the most major cities of the country, though that's partly because it stops at most of the other sizable towns en route. In principle, we have a really good rail service in this country. It connects considerably more places than you might expect, including many of the smaller ones, and despite its critics, it does run mostly efficiently and regularly. It just... Like much else in this country, it suffered from decades of underfunding and overmanagement. The trains are often old and uncomfortable. Yorkshire, for instance, has only recently stopped using old train units called pacers that were only ever designed as a stopgap, and they were scheduled for replacement in... around 2005. Much of the track itself is not strong enough to withstand modern trains travelling at modern speeds, so trains don't go as fast as they could. And, as the storms pre-COP26 showed, there are a number of weak links in the network, such that if one line is closed, much of the entire system is forced to shut down, for a while anyway. I am fully aware the service used to be bigger, and we're still reopening some of the lines and stations closed as a result of the beaching report in the early 1960s. But in all fairness, many of the routes that report cited for closure were probably right to close. He just went way too far, and was too eager, especially in assuming commuter routes were unviable. His belief was that many of these routes were loss-making because they were only used at certain times of the day. Closure of these types of lines forced more people into cars, thus adding to the problems of air pollution and climate change. But that is a subject for another pod. The issue in the UK is that domestic flights are cost-effective, not just in price but also in terms of you know, time and comfort than other forms of travel, thus making them popular. The problem is, one of the touted alternatives the so-called HS2 high-speed railway line, is only planned to run from London to Birmingham, with extensions to Crewe and the East Midlands. The extension planned to Yorkshire has now been shelved. Even if it hadn't have been, we'd have been waiting 10 to 15 years for it. But here's the rub. Nobody flies from Birmingham to London. I don't even think you can fly from Birmingham to London. HS2 would shave a full 30 minutes off the current high-speed journey from Birmingham to London from around 80 to 50 minutes. I'd argue that the cost and hassle of building the bloody thing don't justify a 30-minute saving on what is already a short journey, especially with the rise of teleworking, which is, you know, to be fair, a far more environmentally friendly thing to be doing anyway. 
If you're going to build high-speed link in this country, it needs to be one that makes a significant difference over a longer distance. You know, like London to Edinburgh and Glasgow. And in any case, even if you could fly from Birmingham to London, which you can't, I'd expect the cost of a ticket on HS2 to be out of the price range of the people tempted by cheap flights anyway. I know who HS2 is really targeted at. It's not people like us. What I'd argue we really should be doing in the UK is improving local and regional transport, encouraging people to move away from car usage for short journeys, making long-distance trains cheaper and more pleasurable to travel on, and funding the regions away from London that would mean we wouldn't have to go there anyway. I appear to be ranting. Let's not do that. While writing this pod, I realised I could go off on lots of different topics, including things like palm oil, motoring and veganism. Indeed, I have a contribution for the latter as ready to use. I just couldn't see a way of fitting it into this episode without covering every aspect of environmental concern, and I think that'll be good to crowdsource more contributions for. So in a few episodes' time, I'll do a follow-up to this one and talk about ethical and sustainable travel. Hopefully without ranting too much about transport in the UK. That'll be your job. My next episode will be on London. Finally. I know it will, because I've already written most of it. Until then, reduce, reuse, recycle, and remind the government and international corporations that they should be doing things too. Oh, and if you're feeling off-colour, keep on getting better. Thank you for listening to this episode of Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, don't forget to leave a review on your podcast site of choice. Travel Tales from Beyond the Brochure was written, presented, edited, and produced in the Glasgow studio by the Barefoot Backpacker. Music in this episode was Walking Barefoot on Grass, Bonus, by Kai Engel, which is available by the Free Music Archive and used under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International Licence. Previous episodes will be available on your podcast service of choice, or alternatively on my website, barefoot-backpacker.com. If you want to contact me, I live on Twitter at rtwbarefoot, or you can email me at info at barefoot-backpacker.com. The podcast has a Facebook group at travel.tales.beyond.brochure and I have a Patreon for access to rare extra content. That's patreon.com slash traveltalesbeyondbrochurepod. Until next time, have safe journeys. Bye for now.